Welcome to Carceral Studies Conversations, a series that seeks to understand and illuminate the carceral state's past and present so as to deconstruct these complex systems that structure society and perpetuate harm. I am recording from the traditional lands of the Cato Nation and the Wichita and affiliated tribes, and was also part of the Muscogee Creek and Seminole Nations. My guest is recording from the territory of the Huichen, the ancestral and unceded land of the Chochenyo Ohlone, the successors of the historic and sovereign Verona Band of Alameda County. The land was and continues to be of great importance to the Ohlone people. My guest, who I'm very excited to be speaking with today, is Matthew Goriglia, um, who is a visiting research scholar at the University of California at Berkeley uh, in the Department of History and a policy analyst at the Electronic Frontier Foundation. His research focuses on the intersection of racial and ethnic formation, state building and state power, and urban policing in the United States in the 19th and 20th centuries. He is the founding editor of the Urban History Association's Disciplining the City series, and his writing has appeared in the Washington Post and elsewhere. He is the co-editor of the forthcoming The Essential Kerner Commission Report. Thank you for being in conversation today, Dr. Goriglia. Uh, very happy to be here. This has been a great podcast to listen to. Good. I'm glad. And I'm glad to finally have you on. So let's let's jump right in with what's sure to be a broad uh, question we can dive into some of the details of, because much of your research and much of your work has focused on illuminating the development of carceral logics. What are carceral logics? What is carceral logic? Yeah, that's a doozy of a first question. Um, I would say carceral logic is kind of the guiding principles that are dispersed through our kind of everyday lives that compel people to normalize, justify, reinscribe the kind of violent and often genocidal decisions of the state uh, that, that cause the state to incarcerate people, to police people, to surveil people, and to eliminate. And when I say the guiding principles, I mean, you know, everything from TV shows that justify uh, the, the logical need to police and incarcerate people, that justify the, the pervasive fear of crime, even in a, in a nation where crime is not that big of an issue in many places, um, the kind of logic that dictates it's okay for employers, for instance, to surveil their employees and to, uh, you know, make them accountable for every moment of their time, make them accountable for their emotions while they're working in a factory. Um, and also the kind of logic that reinscribes, you know, black criminality and the kind of overlapping um, logic of, of both incarceration, policing, and also racialization and criminalization. Sure, sure. That makes sense. And there's certainly a lot to unpack there. So let's start with how, I mean, you mentioned that it's, it's this logic that's normalized and re-entrenched. How does this logic get normalized and become part of everyday experience? Yeah, I mean, we can see that all the time is, you know, whenever um, we hear of a, a person who commits a crime or is accused of committing a crime, um, the, the default uh, reaction from the public is an incredibly punitive one. And this punitive reaction extends far beyond crime to, you know, to illness, 
to to people who are unhoused, that our our reaction to uh, somebody who is uh, often a victim of kind of a a capitalist white supremacist society um, is not a compassionate one. It is not one in search of a solution. But carceral logic dictates that these people need to be warehoused and and penalized um, for what has befell them because of the way the kind of um, uncompassionate way we've organized society. Yeah, that compassionate versus uncompassionate way is a great way to look at that. And so you mentioned that it's structured around this capitalist white supremacist society. Is that who benefits? I mean, where who wins in this in this uh, carceral state? I'm not sure if anybody really wins, but um, in terms of the people who you know who see themselves as being beneficiaries of of the carceral state, it is absolutely, it is, you know, people who are allowed to move through society with the presumption of innocence because of their whiteness. People who through, you know, uh, intergenerational wealth and through the strict policing of, um, of class distinctions and through race distinctions, uh, are able to, you know, accumulate the, the, with the you know the economic investment in, of whiteness, they're able to accumulate the the property value and the things that uh, are driven up um, somewhat artificially be, by the carceral state. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so, what are the justifications? And I mean, you mentioned the crime rate, but like, how are these? I mean, if there aren't these real beneficiaries other than maybe whiteness, how is it justified? It's justified through crime, through a fear of criminality, and it has been that way forever. I mean, both fear, both real and imagined, um, becomes such a pervasive tool of scaring people into thinking they need this giant multi-billion dollar infrastructure for policing, surveillance, incarceration. Um, and, and you know, th- this is, it is pervasive. I mean, if you look at like Pew Research polls, the, the fear of crime ha- has absolutely nothing to do with actual criminal statistics, although criminal statistics are themselves dubious and manufactured. Um, but people are just are terrified of crime. And, and, there, and there are a lot of people who perpetuate this because there is benefit to it. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, that's that's a great point that that there's this disconnect between actual crime and the fear of crime. Um, but let's talk about the history of that, because you've mentioned, I mean, it's been around forever. Can you start to sort of trace this, what's become this billion dollar global system of surveillance and policing? Yeah, I mean, you know, if it depends how far back you want to go. I mean, the the kind of um, inscribed deviance of blackness and the and and presumption of black criminality has been around since you know slavery <laughs> since the, the colonial era um and and building a society that both seeks to exploit the labor of uh, people of african descent um that seeks to criminalize them and subordinate them and surveil them um, has been literally a driving force in the the construction and infrastructure of American society um, in terms of, you know, all the way to urban layout and design, designed around, you know, making some neighborhoods uh, subordinate and e- easily surveyable. 
Um, so this kind of the, the interwoven nature of the building of the carceral state, uh, the presumption of black criminality, and building a increasingly efficient exploitative labor market um, is, is all entwined and all goes back at least over a cent- you know, two centuries. Yeah, and you you also trace that that sort of exploitation of labor and social control through the project of American empire um, beyond beyond borders. Yeah, so so the the book project that I've been working on, which is based on my doctoral dissertation of a few years ago, um, traces uh, the the revolving door between uh, U.S. empire and policing urban cities because. As I discovered, there there is a moment in the opening years of the 20th century when police and social scientists and politicians look at increasingly diverse cities and they say, well, how are we supposed to police such a diverse city? How are we supposed to go into neighborhoods where we don't understand the culture, the language, the social hierarchies, and police that neighborhood effectively? And what people realized is that they had been asking the exact same questions a year or two earlier out in the U.S. Empire, that the they were that there were already people, oftentimes the same people, uh, who had been asking the same questions while trying to set up imperial governance in Cuba, in the Philippines, in Puerto Rico, and even before that in the American West. Interesting. So they they bring those sort of international ideas of social control into the American metropolis to control what are perceived as foreign peoples? Uh, yes, that's absolutely the case. Um, and, and throughout the 20th century, I mean, in the years between, say, 1904 and the ni- 1930s, um, almost everyone who becomes the New York City Police Commissioner, which is the city I, I study the most, um, has some experience abroad, has some experience in, in the military or as part of the U.S. empire, for instance, you know, as the commander of a, a mining compound in Mexico, um, they have some kind of experience in either the private sector or the public sector subordinating uh, peoples abroad. And they bring that kind of experience very explicitly with them into the police force where they are governing a city where there are dozens of languages being spoken. Sure, sure. So what are some of the tactics or mechanisms that they they bring home to enact this exploitation or control in their cities? Yeah, so uh, one of the earliest tactics is what they would have called in the empire uh, native policing, recruiting people who speak the language, who understand the culture, who cooperate and collaborate with the police department and go into their own neighborhoods. Um, This was a tactic on reservations in the American West. Uh, it became the the cornerstone of the Philippine constabulary in the Philippines, um, and then it it traveled home in the form of uh, a term that I use, ethnic policing, in places like New York, New Orleans, Philadelphia, Pittsburgh, Chicago, all over uh, kind of industrialized urban landscape in the United States, and and they do this by by rec- explicitly going into neighborhoods and recruiting people to join the police force because of their ethnicity and their language skills. It sounds parallel almost to what a lot of reformers have proposed today in terms of community policing. It's, it's funny you should say that because a lot of these, uh, so the era of ethnic policing, as I call it, does not last very long. It's, it starts around 1904, 1905, and it is pretty much phased out as like 
an explicit project by 1920. Um, but there becomes a kind of a revival in the 1980s and you know 1990s uh, during the era that you know some have called the white ethnic revival, where a lot of communities in New York responding to the Black Civil Rights Movement, trying to find some kind of a a you know. Uh, counter civil rights, white ethnic pride, um, resurrect a lot of these early ethnic policing heroes. Um, and it just happens to correspond with the development of community policing. So for instance, Joseph Petrosino, who is the first Italian NYPD officer, gets a park named after him, not in 1909 when he is killed in the line of duty, but in 1987. And he is hailed retroactively as a kind of hero of community policing, even though that was not a, a term that would have existed during his lifetime. Yeah. And so this ethnic policing failed in the 20s. Yeah. Um, I mean, what, what were the issues? It fails for a number of reasons, one of which is uh, there is a lot of, of very virulent xenophobia that takes hold of politics and of the department by, by that era. Um, and this is a result of a number of things, one of which is the kind of white slavery panic where, uh, you know, people, white Anglo-Saxon Protestants in the city, upper-class people, uh, spark this fear of both non-white and kind of immigrant men that they were um, holding white women in a kind of sexual servitude. Um, and, and the, it, you know, it was a huge panic. It prompted the, the Mann Act of 1910. It resulted in a lot of, uh, immigrant and non-white men being arrested for supposedly crossing state lines with women for immoral purposes. Um, and so the white slave panic, which really grips New York is part of the thing that kind of sows distrust between immigrant men, even when they're on the police force and the people who control the force and politicians in New York. Um, there's also uh, the growing xenophobia that results in the 1921-1924 Immigrant Restrictions Act, which kind of ultimately shuts off uh, immigration from Europe to New York. And also World War I has a, a big thing to do with it and, and the kind of uh, America first nationalism that goes with it that, that says that anybody who identifies as a kind of hyphenate in America is ultimately unpatriotic. And so a lot of things uh, kind of combine uh, to eliminate the era of ethnic policing, not to mention the fact that a lot of the early ethnic police are assassinated because there are so few of them and they're easily recognizable um, in their neighborhoods. And, and there's a lot of distrust between ultimately between the community they're supposed to be policing and themselves. So a lot of them are killed. So all these things kind of combine to end the era of ethnic policing. Wow, that's so interesting. This this nexus you're drawing between sort of local urban policing, uh, international military, uh, imperial affairs, as well as the sort of nationalism or patriotism, um, is just such a such an interesting circle, a revolving door. Um, then, sort of shifting to surveillance, because it seems like a lot of the assassinations you mentioned were because communities did not trust the surveillance by their own. Can we, I guess, start to trace some of the other systems of surveillance that the state has developed um, as part of its carceral project? 
Yeah, and, and I think actually this segues perfectly because I think the system of surveillance that develops out of the end of the era of ethnic policing is technocratic. It is it, it is the the roots of the type of surveillance that we would see today. That you know, um, let's paint a scenario here where um, if police arrest somebody who speaks um, Russian and they do not speak Russian, you don't need to have that kind of cultural and linguistic understanding. If you can fingerprint them, if you can trace that fingerprint to a criminal file on record, if that criminal file has in it where they live, who their accomplices are, who their family are. And so um, really uh, technocratic ways of understanding people um, replaces the kind of cultural and, and lived knowledge that, that was required of a previous generation to identify somebody, to know where they came from, to know who their people were. Um, and so if we think about um, face recognition, or if we think about CCTV cameras, or if we think about um, all these different ways that we use to identify people and to surveil neighborhoods, a lot of it emerges from the unwillingness or the inability to police to get in and understand the people they're policing. Hmm. And it seems that the, these technologies seem to then create even more impersonal or more distance between the police force and the people being policed and surveilled. Yeah, well, I mean, you don't need to have the cooperation of people. You don't need to have trusty informants or have a good uh, partnership, a collaborative partnership with a community if you can just put up cameras and use them instead. Yeah. So you, you've argued then that, that too much surveillance um, makes us both less free and less safe. Can you explain that, especially focusing on how it makes us less safe? Yeah, I mean, I think how too much surveillance makes us less safe is twofold. There are physical limits and restrictions. You know, when you have too much material to sift through, finding the relevant material is harder to do. Um, and this is both, you know, in, in the progressive era in the era of kind of the rogues gallery and of filing cabinets, having to sift through all of that material in order to identify who the local arsonist is, um, is hard to do. Um, the more information you have, the harder it is to find that needle in the haystack. Um, and this goes all the way up to the present day as well. I mean, uh, Edward Snowden has famously said that, you know, all of these people who end up committing atrocious attacks are usually already on the radar of law enforcement. And the reason why sometimes they uh, are unprepared for that person to commit some kind of heinous crime uh, is because they're just watching so many people and because their priorities are often on the wrong things. You know, they're, they're watching um, black activists rather than white supremacists who are armed to the teeth. Um, but the other way I think too much surveillance uh, makes us less safe is just because surveillance is, as I've said, a symptom of a lack of trust and collaboration between the state and communities. Um, and that kind of collaboration, you know, taking more holistic approaches to public safety uh, that kind of trust that you can build between the state and and people 
um, is necessary for public safety. And that the more distrust there is, and the more surveillance goes up, and the more uh, everybody is a potential criminal, and and the more you you treat people like they are um, like they are worthy of subordination and violence and surveillance, the less collaboration there will be, uh, and the less safe everyone will ultimately be. Yeah, that makes sense. It seems like there's this, then this perpetual cycle um, where there's sort of failures to prevent harm or prevent crime, um, and then a reignition of um, surveillance or, or increased surveillance. And I'm wondering um, how the state or how the, these police forces, politicians um, control narratives, how they, as you mentioned at the beginning, that there's this disconnect between actual crime um, and the fear of crime. How does the state um, control narratives of crime and danger? Yeah, well, I, I've written about this in a, in a few places, but the state, like what Weber said about the state having the monopoly on legitimate forms of violence, the state also kind of has a monopoly on legitimate forms of storytelling. That when an, an accident happens, when a crime is committed, when a protest occurs, and, and the press go to the police for their comment, their comment is kind of naturally weighted in a way that it is the the legitimate uh, the legitimate narrative of what happened, um, and this has been the way for a very long time, and it is reinforced by the fact that that the police departments maintain their own archives. Uh, they they can burn things. They can uh, reject Freedom of Information Act requests to specific files for whatever reason. You know the overbroad secrecy of police departments, but also their archives reflect their version of events. Um, and so this has real-world effect both in the present as they write that story and in the future as historians look back on, say, uh, what happened uh, at a specific you know, time of urban disorder. Uh, and, and the people who are victims of state violence are harder to find. Their voices are harder to find in the archives. You know, this has been obviously the story of academic history in the 20th century is how to get toward uh, finding a more more inclusive archives. Um, but the archives that are better maintained, that are more accessible, are the ones that are created and maintained by the government. And these obviously only reflect one side of the story. Yeah, so, so how do historians or even observers trying to better understand today either read against the grain of the state or where do they look for more accurate or nuanced narratives? Well, obviously there are like, you know, proponents of, of social history and there are like great abolitionist scholars like, you know, Robin D.G. Kelly who have, who have been the master of reading against the grain or, or of finding archives, um, you know, um, there are especially a lot of scholars of empire uh, who have dealt with imperial archives have also kind of mastered this. Um, so I'm, I'm certainly not, I think, the go-to person on this. Um, but, but what we've seen is that there is, uh, to steal a, a, a term from uh, Kelly Little Hernandez, there is a kind of rebel archive. Um, there, there are places where you can see people talk about state violence, that you can see um, people... Uh, record their their testimonials of racialized violence throughout history, um, and so 
you know, it's it's obviously important to seek those out. And and what we've seen in the last few years is that the Rebel Archive is more accessible than ever because of things like cell phone footage. I mean, cell phone footage, it doesn't often make the difference of whether or not police are held accountable or not, but it at least grows that Rebel Archive um, and makes it more accessible for for historians and for journalists to question the official narratives of state violence. Yeah, and you're starting to see, or we're starting to see a reaction to that in this cycle you talked about. I mean, a lot of states like Kentucky, like Oklahoma, now have laws uh, being proposed to ban footage or fi or, or uh, pictures of officers in action um, for fear, it seems, that some rebel archive will get out or embarrass the department. But for every every aspect like that, you also have initiative like the one currently being done by the Boston Globe, which allows people to challenge and revise uh, articles about them from the past. Say if they were, you know, arrested and then acquitted, they can go back and and have the Boston Globe edit to set the record straight. Yeah, it's an amazing way to sort of re-engineer, take control of what's online and what information is out there about you. Um, I wanna, I wanna sort of go into detail now on one specific state document, state-produced document that you've looked at, uh, the Kerner Commission report. Um, and I know you've looked at it in depth. So first of all, what is the report and what prompted it? Yeah, so the the Kerner Commission report was a. Um... The National Advisory Commission on Civil Disorders, it was ordered by uh, Lyndon B. Johnson uh, in 1967 after kind of, as a reaction to Watts, as a reaction to a lot of other urban uprisings, um, and uh, a reaction to kind of those, those um, instances of, of protest uh, that were prompted by, you know, a whole lot of things as the as the commission uh, discovers, um, and not just one specific act aspect uh, affecting you know black urban life. Yeah. So what are what are some of the conclusions that the commission reached? Well, I mean, I I think that is that is one of the conclusions is that these issues uh, are are very multidimensional. That it's not just about police violence. It's not just about voter suppression. It's also about economic inopportunity. Uh, it's about uh, housing discrimination. It's about access to quality education and quality health care. Um, and that the ultimate findings of the report were, uh, if you'd like to combat periodic urban uprisings, the way to do that is by addressing a whole host of issues. Um, including police brutality, including economic inopportunity, um, including uh, you know access to to better housing, and including uh, voter suppression and and just general racism and the mistreatment uh, of of black people in cities by by the state and by state sanctioned actors. Sure, sure. I mean, it seems like a pretty landmark report because it did take the state to task. Yeah, and, and I think one of the findings of it and why it's such an interesting document now is that um, it, it was kind of buried in a way. Um, you know, in, in 1968, 1969, the idea was that, you know, 
white Americans who were lapping up the privilege of uh, of a, an economy and a system built to, to help them um, did not want to hear that their well-being was specifically impacting and hurting people and causing these urban uprisings. Um, and so even though there were, um, you know, not perfect, obviously, by any means, but even though there was a, a nod to the type of uh, movements that needed to be made all the way back in 1967, the fact that very little has been done to address these issues that were raised 50 years ago um, is kind of <laughs> is catastrophic and depressing. And also, um, I think a a real indicator of the limits of reform and the limits of what happens when you try to wait around for the state to do the right thing. Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, I know you're an historian by training, but you're alluding to 50 years later. I mean, do you think if there were a Kerner Commission report or some type of report on the uprisings of the last few years, um, that it would find major departures from the original report? Or is there a lot of continuity or parallel? Oh, I think there's absolutely a con lot of continuity. Um, I think a lot of those issues that uh, are addressed in the Kerner Commission report are still the issues that we hear people advocating for today. Um, I think where the Kerner Commission report would, where a contemporary report um, would ha have to be more useful is in very more explicitly addressing reparations um, and and much more explicitly addressing the calls for abolition, um, which I think because we we cannot reasonably rely on a state report to address those issues, uh, we also see the limits of government reports. Yeah, that's a great point. Um, that's a great point. So I want to, I mean, this has given me a lot to think about and a lot, and it's been incredibly interesting. I want to, I want to close with the final question um, that I asked to all guests. What gives you hope today? Yeah, I mean, I think, I think the activism and the organizing, uh, the work that, you know, the, the Black-led abolition work that we're seeing happen now um, and happen really o over the last few years, even long before the, the summer uh, protests and, and uprisings of 2020, um, is giving me a lot of hope. And, and the fact that that has become a real talking point and, and something that... Um, you know, especially young people are, are really getting great at, at making the argument for, um, even in spaces where you would not hear abolitionist arguments earlier, um, is, is giving me hope. I think, you know, when it comes to surveillance, um, I think we're seeing a, a turn away from the kind of privacy nihilism of the last few years of, you know, the police already have everything. The police have technologies we don't even understand. All these companies have our data anyway, so why should we bother? Uh, there's no way to stop companies who collect our data from then giving that data to the state, to law enforcement. I think we're, we're starting to see a strong turn away from that kind of privacy nihilism. And the fact that, you know, uh, over a dozen cities at the municipal level have banned police use of face recognition in the last few years or are banning predictive policing which is kind of, uh, you know, 
pure eugenics dressed up in in a, a legitimizing discourse of data and numbers. Uh, I think the fact that we're seeing this happen at the municipal level really across the country is something that's giving me hope right now. That's great. And it speaks to what you mentioned earlier about the power of the states and sort of noticing where power, grassroots organizing power can be enacted. Um, and yeah, it's, it's, it's amazing to see that sort of the imagination, which has been disciplined through all systemic ways and structural ways has been broken. And there's this, this incredible imagination. Um, so I want to thank you so much for taking the time to chat today. This has been great. This has been interesting. Um, and your work has been fun to read, exciting to read. Thank you. Yeah, this, is, this has been great. I can't wait to hear uh, what this podcast has in store for the future. Good. Well, tune in next time. Uh, follow us on Twitter at OU underscore CSC.